Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are continuing our series uh, for Theology 442, History of the Reformations. And so we are still in the Duffy book, The Stripping of the Altars, Traditional Religion in England, 1400 to 1580. And this session will discuss chapters 15 and 16, um, which will be uh, the issue of wills and then uh, the Marian reaction or restoration, um, whatever language someone chooses to use, and usually that language uh, demonstrates one's uh, view, whether it be from a Catholic or Protestant perspective. Um, Just, I want to briefly hit on why the chapter on wills is in there. One of the things in traditional scholarship of the English Reformation that has happened is that uh, scholars have examined uh, wills in different localities to see what language was used in the wills. For instance, when, when people are um, are dying, do they put in the will that they want to have masses said for the repose of their soul? Um, do they put language in their wills about the invocation of the saints or the uh, intercession of the saints? Uh, do they just simply say that they want a certain amount of money given to the poor? And Protestants have sometimes taken that as a shift to, sh- to say, see, people are, are <coughs> becoming less... Uh, traditionally Catholic in their view. Um, But what Duffy is really doing in this chapter is disputing kind of uh, people taking that as as an accurate gauge of people's beliefs. And there's going to be a few reasons for that. Uh, First, people are having to learn how to accommodate and conform to changing situations. And so it might well be that they just didn't want to have those who have to execute their will be in a difficult position if they use language in their will, which might tie things up or get them in trouble with the authorities. Um, B, uh, someone giving money to the poor is not something that was not done before already, and it could be just as much a demonstration of traditional Catholic belief as Protestant belief, um, as almsgiving was considered to be good for helping one uh, gain eternal life or, or, or being freed from purgatory. And then C, is it wasn't uncommon for those who wrote the wills as a profession uh, to increasingly try to use language that would make the will as uh, as um, ironclad as possible and, and, and not subject to a bunch of, of fighting later um, or to censorship from above. And so it might sometimes be the testator who is responsible for the language much more than the person who is, is dying. But So this chapter is simply helpful for showing how difficult it can be to gauge um, how much uh, the policy or big ideas from the top trickle down to common people. That being said, I would say um, that I think Duffy does a good job of raising questions about using wills as a way to to get a sense for things. Um, But I don't know that we can completely dismiss um, significant scholarship that has been done by historians in this regard. But what I would like to especially get into in this session is chapter 16, which uh, covers Mary. And Duffy is exactly uh, right. He's spot on when he says uh, right away at the beginning of this chapter that a convincing account of the religious history of Mary's reign has yet to be written. It's very interesting that there's been a lot of work done on Henry, on Edward, and Elizabeth, but less so on Mary. And in fact, if anyone's had uh, to deal with um, 
just caricatures having been made of them. It's probably Mary. In fact, many people who know of Mary today know her as Bloody Mary because of the people who were burned under her watch. And even in that regard, we have to keep in mind, it's not as if Mary was the first person to start executing people or putting people in the tower for their religious beliefs. This was a common practice throughout Europe and amongst the Tudors. Um, Although she is going to, we shouldn't diminish, and even Duffy is fair on this. He says we shouldn't diminish um, the loss of life that took place, which is in the hundreds, but but it's still significant. Uh, but we don't, there hasn't been a lot of work done to get a sense for how successful Mary's programs were in their time and how successful they might have been had she been able to continue on in her reign for a longer period of time. But when when Mary comes to power, she's faced with a very daunting task. So Mary is the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, Henry's first wife. Um, she lives there for a fairly cloistered life, an uncomfortable life, because she's raised by a mother who's been removed from, from power, uh, shamed pretty much publicly, even though Catherine had never done anything wrong. Um, right, we You can't control if you're going to ha- give birth to a male heir or not. And Catherine had had a difficult life. Of, she 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 desperately wanted uh, to give Henry the heir that he was seeking, um, and and so uh, she had her own crosses to bear. And so Mary is is raised as an outsider almost, although she is uh, the daughter of the of the king. So Edward um, is is going to be the daughter of uh, Jane Seymour. Mary is the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. And Elizabeth will be the daughter of Anne Boleyn. So this will be kind of the... Dr- we ought not underestimate how much their mothers, who their mothers are, influence their positions. Just as Mary kind of had to be Catholic because her mother was Catherine of, of Aragon, um, Elizabeth will, will have to be uh, Protestant, essentially, because her mother was, was Anne Boleyn. So pick up with Mary. Two things that Mary will... Um, basically get credit for, fairly or unfairly, and that will be that England will never again be a Catholic country uh, and that the English will become more and more (laughs) anti-Spanish. The first, because this Catholic restoration fails, and I think Duffy does a good job of saying maybe largely fails because Mary dies. Maybe it was more successful in its time than we realize. Um, But then also the... uh, the anti-Spanish explanation will be, well, she married Philip of Spain, um, and uh, because she support, supports Spain in, in, in war with France, they're going to lose uh, Calais, which is kind of like the last English holding or important historical holding on the continent. And then, obviously, the Spanish Armada under Elizabeth will really solidify this anti-Spanish feeling in, in England. But maybe as we, as we pick up... Um, and Mike, I'll throw it to you for any thoughts you might have. And here, feel free to just be the students. And if you don't have anything you want to say, we can have awkward silence. Um, but what might be, we've now discussed Henry and Edward. Uh, what do you think might be some challenges that Mary would face immediately um, as she comes to power and, and tries to reintroduce Catholicism in the realm? I think, uh, you know, just the poor gal's been shopped around too. Like there's, there's marriages that are 
<laughs> you know, you just feel bad for her. She like, has a very hard life. Yeah. And there's, you know, at one time she's going to marry uh, Prince of France, right? Is that Francis? Or I can't remember which one he was going to I think be. they tried then, to, to, yeah. And then uh, Charles V, which is the Holy Roman Emperor, and then eventually uh, uh, Philip from Spain, too. And so um, she's a woman, too. I mean, I don't want to make that uh, a too a big thing, but I don't want to make it a, a small thing either. Um, she only she only is what five six years ruling. Five years, yep. Um, so I mean, there's some practical things that are there, but more to the point, <clears throat> once you start giving a certain sense of religious freedom, and now that's I don't think religious. I'm saying religious fe- freedom like we think about today in America, but you were able to have a discussion about these things. There were in the ale houses, you could have this and you knew that they were people who had uh, the, the archbishop's ear or the king's ear that was on your side kind of thing, right? Once you open up those doors of a certain amount of, I can think what I want to think and that there is going to be the possibility that the kingdom and the church may go my way it's hard to it's hard to put those horses back in the barn right so i i think that that shouldn't be underestimated but i do you know agree with with uh, your character of duffy's take that um you know given more time maybe right because these are cultural things so the cultural the cultural things of the uh the uh of the the church here, the cultural things of the worship, the cultural things of the Book of Common Prayer could be undone with more cultural things, right? And if if she could prove that she was a competent leader, if she could, uh, you know, make a make a deal with, let's say, Spain, right? She has connections there, of course that would would uh, allow them to uh you know hold back the french you know people may like oh, it's all right to be this way and you're not that far away from catholicism and all of its all, all of its underpinnings i i think maybe and i may be reading maybe i'll ask you i'll ask you the question instead of giving my opinion which is not going to be very thoughtful is does she push too hard in some of those cultural things too fast? Is that maybe part of her downfall? Yeah, and I think this is where, and, and you hit at it. it. The challenge becomes when you're you're reintroducing practices that have now been removed for some time. Um, if those practices are going to truly influence people and take hold, people have to regain a sense for why they matter, for how they fit for how they connect, for how they ought to shape life so that it doesn't just seem like superstition or like a disconnected web of things that you just have to do. And I think the challenge of Mary's short reign in this is there wasn't five years is not sufficient time to catechize people in these ceremonies. Um, It was also very hard to put the churches back together now, here, I think Duffy does a good job showing of Mary's regime does a rather remarkable job of recovering as much as they did, right? They they say if you bought something that the church had to sell under Edward, you got to give it back. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also people who had bought it who freely give it back because they wanted it back in the church, or you could loan it back. Um, but to 
to redeck out the churches is an expensive undertaking after they've been so successfully removed. Uh, most churches uh, are going to end up using the high altar again, but it's very hard to replace the side altars. Um, they get to the point where most churches have a processional cross, but not the two that you were supposed to have. Um, it's very hard, and this is why with each of these sessions I've been trying to talk about, think of how the church and church life um, looks. It's very hard to recreate what once existed before. And there I would simply say, maybe a good way to think of this is, and I don't know if you've ever done this, Mike, I know I have. You go back to somewhere where you grew up, and you remember it a certain way, and you have um, the places had taken on meaning for you. You know, something as silly for me would be um, our, uh, in Michigan we call them party stores, but, you know, <laughs> I don't hear it, maybe call them convenience stores, mm-hmm. drug stores, right? Arbor Drug around the corner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd go there to get baseball cards or to get candy bar or, or to hang out outside um, or to play uh, baseball off the, the big wall in the back. And, and then you go back and that's not there. Right, mm-hmm. and let's say maybe there's a CVS there now, but it's really hard for some reason for CVS to replace Arbor Drug for me. I it's worked at a, I worked at an Arbor Drugs that became a CVS. Did you? Yeah, it was a big chain, and yeah. um, but it can be difficult. Um, now you might say, well, a CVS is basically an Arbor Drug. What um, what does it matter? Well, it's just not quite the the same. Or there used to be a lot of trees lining the street. And then ash borer or whatever came, and they had to cut down the trees. And now there's maybe some new trees have been planted, but they're just, it's not the, it's not the same. Um, your neighbor's house is a different color now. Um, I could go on and on. But these things take on, it's just a different feel. And, uh, and so people have this shifting sense of uh, locatedness and, and memory and, um, and you know, experiential sense of, of what's taking place. And it's just hard to bring back the whimsy that maybe would have been there in a more vibrant Catholicism earlier. <clears throat> uh, you also just have this connection of, that was very successful, I would say, under Henry and Edward, of the papacy with foreign influence. And this is something that becomes a strong influence in America, too. I mean, think about what a big deal it was when Kennedy finally gets elected. Uh, people were really nervous that, like, Kennedy would get elected, and then the Pope would be like, all right, now everybody becomes Catholic. And, right. and Kennedy would say, okay, I'll make it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, Father or whatever you call it. Um, the, uh, but, but if England is, sub- is not under the Pope's, America's definitely not under the Pope's control. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, oceans tend to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then also being married to Philip of Spain uh, gives an uh, she's identified with with um, foreignness. And then Reginald Pole, right, is, is, is a cardinal, is identified with Rome. Um, I would say this uh, kind of English xenophobia and here I don't mean xenophobia in a modern sense of like, oh, so and so is a racist bigot. I mean, it more like Mike and I talked on the previous episode. They're on an island. Right, and this is, and it's an island that's coming into its own under the Tudors. It'll be under Elizabeth that England becomes what we think of in so many ways, of England today. But I think this otherness will will prove to be difficult. Um, 
when maybe and maybe you can uh unpack this one a little bit, Mike. I think one of the things too so um Paul and uh who's gonna be kind of who's carrying out things for for Mary. But uh he is gonna pit ceremony against text. And I said in the previous session, maybe we can unpack this a little bit more in, in this one. Uh and he's going to say, we're going to put ceremony above text. So this is going to be um, an emphasis on the ceremonial. But one of the things with ceremonies that gives them their power is you grow up in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you take your little son to the baseball game and you sing. You have the seventh inning stretch and you sing, take me out to the ball game. Um you have your first Holy Communion or your confirmation. What what do you think might could be the challenge of now with Henry and, and Edward, so many who had not grown up with these things of, of trying to make those ceremonies their own? Well, first of all, you're forcing it, right? I mean, just imagine going from, I don't know, your your dad, your mother, whatever gets a job to... I don't know, India, and all of a sudden you have to play cricket instead of baseball, you know? I mean, it's going to take a while to do that. I mean, it would probably be a a different... I like that as an illustration. (laughs) It's just, it's similar, but you know what? It's just different. Um, You know, it's probably some better analogies there of uh, all of a sudden, you know, um, well, just think about how aggravated we get, especially at our age, maybe, that okay, something in the sports world changes, right? You know, like now all of a sudden they're going to do, you know, we're going to add an an extra uh, NFL playoff team. And I'm like, you know what? I don't like that. Or even if the National League got a designated hitter or I the would, American I would League be, got rid of it. I would be super ticked yep. either way. Um, and it takes time. It just takes, it takes a lot of time for people to change. And that's actually okay. Right. I mean, we should be skeptical of change. Right. You know, and change for the sake of change really just doesn't doesn't do it for me. Right. You know, so I when you force something upon somebody instead of letting it happen organically, which is probably what is closer to the Edwardian way of doing it. You know, although there were some things forced there, too. I don't don't want to make it whatever. But uh, here we've talked about this, too. You want you want you want the key to leadership is making people think that they that, that your idea was their idea. Yeah. When you force people to do it, they're going to bucket no matter what. I mean, that, that's just human nature, of course, too. But then again, you, especially with this, it's hard for a Catholic queen married to a Catholic prince from a foreign land that identifies itself as being uber Catholic, uber Catholic, to come in and say some of these ceremonies are okay and it's and it's for the the unity of the church let's think about this and slowly catechize you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater that they're not going to believe that right they're not going to I can see that and then and then inevitably there's going to be political strife inevitably in this time period there's going to be an assassination here or there you know and then you just give ammunition for everybody to say see we shouldn't you know we should fight I, I, I don't know if that was what you're after, but I think there's no. I, I think it. There. Um, I would say something. You know, a similar experience since we talk sports would be, um, you know, if you go to like a uh, in Europe, like you go to a, a soccer game, you know, of like a, a top tier team, and there's all these tradi- 
that's one of the things I will say. Like soccer for me, to like play it, mm-hmm. I'm kind of I've always always like it's a lot of running to just <laughs> occasionally get to kick the ball, you know. But like to go to a, a live soccer game mm-hmm. is a crazy experience, right? Um, but it's part of it's it only gets to be kind of super fun when you know the chance and you know what they do at what minute mark and, and why are they yelling this now and what is that smoke for and mm-hmm. um and i think it, the same with mary there wasn't time for the fan base you know to really grow um and for them to, to get rooted in this maybe if we take just two things that really mark mary's reign too um in a negative way historically um, one will be the martyrs, uh, most famously, um, Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, John Hooper um, are going to be uh, martyred under Mary. Uh, and then this is going to be recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs, right? Fox is going to later memorialize these people. So Mary gets associated with um, producing martyrs in a way that others don't necessarily and under Elizabeth, yeah, you, you want to help a cause against you, make make a martyr for them, right? And under Elizabeth's reign, um, this becomes part of English identity of, you know, these Protestant martyrs, um, the same as you know England being anti-Spain will become very important. Uh, th- there are um, these men who die under Mary are extremely gifted. Um, most of the the evangelicals or Protestants in the movers and shakers and Henry Henry's and uh, Edwards England were very well educated, often Cambridge or Oxford men, um, very sophisticated, often very um, politically uh, nubile. They were able to move well, and uh, and this will be a big loss for Protestantism, but their martyrdom, as I think you were getting at, Mike, uh, will. Excuse me. Give them an influence <coughs> beyond anything they probably could have achieved had they they lived. And and maybe Mike, if you want to hear a little bit, why is that in Christian history? Why has Christianity always been so drawn to its martyrs? I mean, it goes right back to the early church. Sure, I, there's a connection connection to Jesus Christ, right? I mean, I mean that's part of part of part of the deal. Um, and then not just Jesus Christ, but most of the apostles, right? Um, John and, the Baptist. Yeah, and there's time. There, I, I think there's a sense too, like, you know, you're. A, a, there's been times when you're not, especially in the early church, you're not a real Christian unless you suffered, specifically death, right? So you had you had those issues of the people early in the church who uh, didn't suffer martyrdom, and you wonder, well, why weren't you killed during that, or your turncoat, or whatever? And so I, I think. I think that's that has a history in Christianity, of course. And if you're living, if you're, if you're, we talked about the calendar last one. All most of these saints' days, these are people that died, like, and then you know how how historically accurate we don't know about all these, but they died in very creative ways, uh-huh. right? And and so there's a Christian connection to that, but there's also just a human connection to that. If someone's willing to die for something. You either go, that person's crazy or mistaken, or, man, what I better look into what they were thinking about, too. And so I think there is just a, the human thing that says that person is revered, even if you disagree with them, that at least they were, 
at least they were consistent enough that they were willing to die for their cause. And I think this and this is why Mary's lasting legacy will be what it is. And that that term Bloody Mary, which is a later um, you know uh, appellation that's given to her, is a uh, she's just colored by this, and it really gives this resurgent Protestantism under Elizabeth a narrative and and heroes to latch on to. Uh, maybe just to talk a little bit about Cranmer, since he loses his life under uh, um, under Mary. And there's, if you want to read like a 1,200-page book or something like that, a fantastic one is McCulloch's uh, Biography of Cranmer. It's just an example of how to do biography. Uh, but Thomas Cranmer is, as I mentioned, someone who went from being probably leaning towards Lutheranism to leaning more towards the uh, the Swiss Reformation. Uh, but he's someone who actually is able to navigate rather successfully uh Difficult waters often throughout life. <coughs> Excuse me, I got a frog in my throat. Uh, and his kind of ability to try to mediate things, um, to try to take wins when you could get them and minimize losses when you can, uh, I think is something that is that made what happened under Elizabeth possible, but also is maybe uh, church bodies often take on some of the characteristics of their their leading figures. And I think if if the Church of England has taken on the spirit of, of any of its early uh, shapers, it's not Henry VIII, mm-hmm. right? I would say it's Cranmer. The same as Lutheranism with Luther, right? There's Sometimes people from the outside are like, why are Lutherans always arguing and fighting? Well, it's what we do. <laughs> it's what we do. And, and when we're doing it, we think we're being like Luther, right? Mm-hmm. Um, why does Lutheranism have so many synods? Why, does it, um, why are there so many doctrinal discussions, right? Um, well, uh, it's Luther who says of, of Zwingli and others, right? We, you have a different spirit. It's just part of who we are. The Calvinism, the Reformed, um, their influence, uh, their interest in philosophy, and and there's a reason that so many of the Reformed have produced apologetic works, right, like presuppositionalism and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> the resort Reformed interest in a kind of Christian republic is in how that has shaped the American setting. Um, I think Cranmer is, a, and and I don't mean this as a put down either, because I actually have a, a very pretty high view of Cranmer overall. Um, I think he's kind of the spirit animal, you know, although he's not an animal, um, for what will become the Church of England. And I think we can pick that up a little bit more under uh, Elizabeth. But I just want to emphasize, uh, these men who were put to death, obviously they weren't happy to be put to death. But um, it is, uh, it's probably going to do more good for the Protestant cause um, than it will do for a... uh, than it will do to set it back. Um, Mike, any other impressions you just have had of Mary in general or the the attempt for Catholic reaction? Keep in mind, too, Mary is trying to do this before the Counter-Reformation is a thing on Europe. Yeah. So there's no Jesuits to help. There's right. no... Um, this is before the Catholic Church has really come up with a, a necessary... A, a, a comprehensive way to try to win back territories. Yeah, I... When you look at Roman Catholic criticisms of the Reformation... Um, 
they're misguided in the sense that they don't understand that this is, this is primarily theological in, in, in some ways, you know, I'm thinking of like, you know, Isabella of Spain and stuff like that. And the ones that do understand that's a theological issue are going to often say, this is what the Pope and the council says, that kind of thing. But then there's kind of, there's, there's those, and it's all mixed up, but there are those who say, you're going to lose order, you're going to lose community, you're going to lose mysticism, you're going to lose these things. And I think we, in the Protestant, greater Protestant world, and in this way I include Lutheranism, that we ought to listen to them sometimes, and, and, and not, even though we disagree from their foundation, we would say, you know what, there, there is, we, we should be careful that we don't lose these things, and what are the unintended consequences of these things, and I don't know, I don't think that would have worked. I don't think that uh, Mary was thinking that way or whatever. But with historical hindsight, we can say, I, I can maybe understand why Mary is saying, I don't want England to be like Switzerland. You know, I'm not, she wouldn't have known that, you know, look at me. I, I don't, I, this is a, this is a big change. Like this is all of a sudden, this Catholic country, this Catholic continent has only known one church for like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and of years. And that church's life and teaching shaped the traditional life and teaching of the nation. And just because my father was, you know, a little bit of a, you know, not a strong woman. Strong personality. <laughs> you know, womanizer is probably too strong because that's not really... Well, he kind of was. He was he a womanizer, but... At least one element yeah, You know what I mean? Like, he was, let's say, uh, flippant about the care of his wives, right? And uh -huh. the future of his wives. Although, like, Henry VIII, too, like the earlier accounts, young Henry VIII, kind of was. Like, they would talk about his handsome. Oh. He kind of had swagger. He was a player. Let's just say that. He was good just at, because, like, the games and stuff. Just because my father was a player and my, and, and my predecessor was a 15-year-old whatever who knows who's pulling the strings doesn't mean that we give up a thousand years of history here. You right. know, you can understand that and you can understand like a conservative today saying, okay, I can't really make a good argument for losing this cultural thing, but oh, I just, I'm worried, you know, we're going to miss this. And you can, conservative saying, well, you're going to, you're all of a sudden people aren't going to have a good work ethic or, or, you know, people aren't going to love America or what, you know, whatever. You can, you can understand that, and that shouldn't be just pushed aside. This is this was a huge, huge change. And she honestly thought the souls of the English people were yeah. at risk. I mean, to be outside the church at this time in the Catholic Church was not a good thing for your soul. No. Um, she actually thought, you know, this is, I, I want my people to go to heaven. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what does it say about me, you know, when I face God, that I didn't do more? And so it's very easy to say, okay, if a few heads have to roll, a few heads have to roll. Yeah. And so Philip the, um, of Spain is going to kind of end up taking off. Um, Mary kind of has this sad kind of depressing end. Um, and when she dies, there is this huge question mark of what next? What, what now what is church going to look like? What's going to be the direction? And you have people who are hopeful and nervous on both sides. Um, some that are sure that this will mean that traditional Catholicism will take more of a hold under Elizabeth. 
um, some of the Protestants who think this is going to be their big opening again. So we can maybe leave off there. Um, but I, I, I would say, you know, uh, Mary is one that is, uh, I hope more research is done about in, in, in the field of history. I mean, it would be an interesting one if anybody wants to dig more into. Um, but in, in, in the end, the Catholic reaction or restoration just isn't going to hold. Um, and it really will be something because of good propagandizing under Elizabeth, something that will be painted as this negative past that England never wants to go back to. Um, and then the, the idea of Spanish, the Spanish as enemies, too, will play into that. Uh, maybe one last thing we can hit on is uh, notice in all of this the intertwining of church and state, right? And how um, it can be hard to separate one's Christianity from one's patriotism or the state. And in all of these changes and the accommodations that have to be made, how being a good citizen and a good Christian must have been extremely hard to to navigate. Um, we can see how the American founding fathers then decided to say there's going to be no state-established religion, right? Um, because they, they see what comes out of this. Um, but maybe it's also a healthy reminder for Christians that there probably has never been the time that we like to romantically dream of, um, at least not you know after Constantine, where the church and the state aren't in, to some extent bound up. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe even still in our American settings today where different denominations might have defaults, different defaults about what it means politically and, and all these other things to be a member um, of the church. But I would say this stresses, again, the importance of doing historical theology because it leads us to have to try to find our blind spots where maybe our Christianity is more patriotic or more state-tied than we thought. And sometimes our view of the state is maybe colored by Christianity in a way that isn't necessarily all that Christian either. I don't know if that makes sense at all, but any thoughts you might have, Mike, with that? No, I think, you know, we talked about this before. It's like almost impossible to split the two, right? And and, and uh, I'm very thankful to live in America that, that, has, that has, for the for the most part, in an imperfect world, kind of maintain those influences in different spheres, right? Um, But uh, I'm not ignorant enough to think that this is something that can hold intention. I I think one of the dangers is that, you know, just becomes a completely secularized state state, and all religions get, uh, um, are going to be, you know, criticized if not persecuted against i mean i mean i think that is a real threat i'm not i'm not trying to be apocalyptic here right um so and that is a worry of course of catholics of that time right like you're gonna you start opening this up a little bit and then all of a sudden it becomes who knows what not just the wild west but the church is going to going to not just lose power but maybe even lose its power when it comes to souls and kind of stuff like that. So, uh, you know, it, it, the, we got a lot to learn from these, f- from these people and got to put ourselves back into their shoes and say, what was their culture? What were they thinking? And not be, 
maybe so judgmental all the time and at the same time say yeah we shouldn't do that like that that was a mistake that was a mistake i think that the balance that is it's it's a razor sharp edge right and always has been and uh there is no perfect system of course and so it is something to think about as we as we think about our own contemporary situation all right i just want to close with one of what like what i think is one of the best quotes in history um and it comes up if i'm not mistaken in the movie v is for vendetta as well which was a good kind of dystopian novel uh but it's also in or movie i mean but it's also in another great dystopian novel Fahrenheit 451, but as Latimer and Ridley are about to be burned, um, and the the fire was too damp, by the way, so they, they have an excruciating death that Cranmer has to watch, and Cranmer himself, who's recanted, will go into the fire and then burn first his hand that he had recanted with, but uh, but Latimer says to, to Ridley, play the man, Mr. Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. And uh, and I think this is where we want to focus on Mary in this section too, but the the influence that the Marian martyrs will have uh, will be lasting uh, in the Church of England. Um, and then to emphasize again uh, the extent to which uh, all of the tutors so far have sought to foster. Um, Obedience to the state, even Mary, right, is acting in many ways as head of the church in her land, <clears throat> obedience to the state, but also desired um, conformity and unity on sea religion as a vehicle for that. And and so we'll see Elizabeth finally accomplish some of it, but just because she lives a really long time. And so I would I would close with this advice for you. If, if you really want to accomplish a lot in your life, I try to live a really long time. Uh, because that was Edward and Mary's mistake. So eat your veggies, um, get some exercise. That's what I do. Um, and uh, for the record, uh, Wade and I don't want to accomplish great things. <laughs> no, yeah, I've got no no hopes. Um, we have no ambitions. But otherwise, you know, do your thing and let the bird fly.